Welcome to Speaking with Confidence, a podcast that's here to help you unlock the power of effective public speaking. I'm your host, Tim Newman, and I'm excited to take you on a journey to become a better public speaker. If you are like most people, just the thought of speaking in front of a crowd or talking during an important meeting can trigger all kinds of anxiety. Trust me, I know what that's like. I gave my first speech as a senior in college. I was so nervous that as soon as I got to the front of the room and opened my mouth to speak, I threw up. I've learned a lot since then and have helped hundreds of students overcome their fear of messing up or sounding stupid. So, if you are tired of feeling nervous and anxious every time you must speak in public, or if you want to captivate your audience, whether it's a room full of people, or just a small gathering of friends, or even make a sale, you've come to the right place. Each episode of the podcast will discuss the art and science of public speaking and cover techniques to enhance your communication skills. Before we dive into the details, let's take a moment to reflect on the importance of effective communication in our lives. Whether you're a student presenting in front of your classmates, a professional giving a presentation to your colleagues, or simply someone who wants to speak up with conviction and impact, mastering the art of speaking with confidence can be a game changer. Keep in mind that the more confident we are as individuals, the more likely we are to have a positive mindset, higher levels of motivation, and less stress. Having confidence in your speaking abilities significantly impacts our personal and professional lives. Effective communication not only allows us to express our ideas clearly, but also helps us connect with others, inspire change, and build strong relationships. By mastering the art of speaking with confidence, you can conquer job interviews, impress your superiors, ace presentations, and deliver captivating speeches that leave a lasting impact. Please understand that becoming a confident and authoritative speaker takes work and practice. Steve Jobs, you know, the guy who started Apple computers, developed the iPod, and transformed how we communicate with the iPhone, practiced his keynotes for months prior to rolling out new or updated products. Knowing this, each episode has something for everyone, including interviews with experts, real-life success stories, and practical tips that you can immediately apply in your own life. We'll provide you with actionable steps and exercises to practice your speaking skills and build confidence. You'll learn how to structure your speeches, use body language effectively, and even handle unexpected situations with grace and poise. Here's the best part. We'll do it all with a touch of humor and a lot of heart. Public speaking doesn't have to be daunting. It can be an exciting and enjoyable journey. So whether you're tuning in from your car, your office, your living room, or even if you just finished throwing up, Get ready to embark on a transformative journey with the Speaking with Confidence podcast. Together, we'll unlock your full potential as a public speaker. So make sure you subscribe, like, and download our podcast today. Visit the Speaking with Confidence website and join our growing community. Sign up for special updates regarding the June 1st launch of the formula for public speaking. So with that being said, let's welcome in our first guest, Dr. Chris Hobbs. He's a 20-year veteran in the field of education, holding positions of teacher, coach, student minister, principal, athletic administrator, and executive director. He's worked in suburbs of D.C., New York City, West Palm Beach, and currently in Houston. In his current role as a director of institutional advancement at Second Baptist School in Houston, Texas, he provides global leadership to admissions, advancement, communications, and marketing for six campuses, two education models, and over 2,000 students. As an athletic director, he was named a top 40 under 40 sports leader by Coach and AD Magazine and the National High School AD of the Year by BSN Varsity Brands. Hobbs writes a blog and hosts a podcast called 
Bite Down and Don't Let Go, which we're going to talk about later. He is also a keynote speaker whose insights on leadership are regularly featured in the educational, nonprofit, and corporate spaces. He holds four degrees, including a master's degree in sports coaching and a doctorate of education in educational leadership. Later this spring, Dr. Hobbs will transition into his new role as superintendent of Indian Rocks Christian School in Largo, Florida. On top of all this, Chris has been married for 23 years to his wife, Jen, and they have three children, ages 22, 19, and 17. Chris, I don't know how you do it, um, but I was told once that, you know, if, if you want something done, find somebody who's passionate and busy, and that's obviously you. <laughs> well, Tim, uh, it is uh, an honor to be with you. Uh, and um, my father once said that introductions are like cologne. You can smell them, just don't swallow them. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that's, that's a little bit how I feel here and all that. Uh, but it's great to meet you, man. It's great to be on this podcast with you. Well, it's good to talk to you as well. And we talked offline a little bit and, and you know, the, the whole idea of the power of communication and how you come across as a, as a speaker is really important and how young professionals today really kind of struggle with, with their identity because they, they don't know where to start. They don't know how to, how to actually get that, get that going. Mm, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Al Moeller, who's uh, been the leader of probably one of the premier seminaries in the country for over three decades now says, uh, leadership hasn't happened until communication has happened. Right. Uh, and so uh, the, the communication component for a leader is a huge deal. Uh, and really, in today's information age and the knowledge economy, uh, the ability to communicate has never been more valuable than it is in our current times. Yeah, exactly. So let's go on a little career journey and, and, and talk about your, your journey as, as not only as a professional in the education space, but also your journey as, as a communicator. We, we, we all know that when we're younger, we think we communicate well, but we, a lot of times we get into our first job and the first thing that our supervisor says is you need to learn how to communicate better because, you know, we're, we're, we're talking with and we're dealing with people that are not our peers. We're, we're, we're dealing with, you know, in your case, it's parents, administrators, and that sort of thing. It could be a supervisor. It could be, a, you know, a teammate. It could, really could be anything. So like I said, let, let's go on a little career journey with you. you, you your first job right out of of college was was as a physical education teacher. And and again, I don't know anybody who wasn't excited to get their first job, but what were your concerns and, and what did you have, uh, what, what were your concerns about your ability to, to actually step into that position? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think one of the advantages I had uh, coming out of, of college is I was jumping right into the industry in which I had been raised. Uh, not only are we all raised as students in the educational space, but both my parents were educators. Uh, and uh, we had lots of educators and um, pastors in my kind of my family background. And so I was always in scenarios. It felt like I was always in scenarios where there was someone communicating. There was like a lead voice at all times. And so um, I just kind of felt like it was the natural progression for me to step into, let's say, a classroom setting and be the, the lead voice in the room. Uh, and so I don't know if I had a lot of concerns so much as I had a ton of excitement uh, to, to, to be that voice, uh, to be the one that sets the tone uh, for the atmosphere that my students would be hopefully uh, thriving and learning in. And so um, it felt very natural. I found out very fast that it's not natural. You know, it's something that has to be worked on. Uh, but uh, you can get away with a lot uh, just being enthusiastic for a little while uh, until you figure out 
uh, some of the skills, the, the skills that are necessary to do it at a high level. And so I probably got away with enthusiasm and passion for a little while uh, and a comfort level with the atmosphere because I was raised in it uh, before the skill of doing it actually came along. And so I would probably cringe if any of that was on video anywhere back in uh, the year 2000. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I understand that resemble that remark, you know, very much. But, you know, you know, being an educator, and, and you're probably still dealing with some of this, you know, e- each year, each semester, when you get a different set of students, there's s- still some of that excitement and, 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 and trying to figure out the personalities of the students, right? And, and then you've, as, as, we, as we get older and, we, and as we get better at figuring these things out, you know, we, we learn, I would say, a lot quicker on how to deal with the personality of, of, a, of a class. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think a huge deal to being an effective communicator is social emotional intelligence, um, awareness, situational awareness, understanding your audience. Um, Jordan Peterson um, has a lot of great insights on how when you are speaking from a platform, it's, it's, it's most effectively done when it has a conversational aspect, even if that conversational aspect is just the, the lead voice reading the room, paying attention to to body language and facial expressions and, you know, gauging that as kind of a compass to how your communication should be unfolding. And so a classroom setting is very similar to that. Um, speaking to a room full of parents is similar to that. Speaking to a room full of, of leaders and staff members, uh, it's all very, very similar. And so I would say a big part of being a lead voice in a setting, uh, being a, a public speaker is being fully aware that this should be a conversation in which I am reading the room and how they're responding to what I'm sharing and making little adjustments along the way according to what I'm reading in that room. And so it's a very empathetic, socially, emotionally aware thing. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you probably go into this, you know, probably much like I did, you know, you're going to be dealing, communicating with students, you know, you're going to be communicating with parents of students. And you know you're going to be communicating with administration. Were there any other groups that you came across, that, you know, especially early in your career, that you said, "Wow, I, I didn't think about this group of people," or "I didn't think about you know th- th- these positions of people that I that I needed to interact with." Yeah, I would say probably almost every time I spoke, um, and maybe even to this day uh, when I speak in in different settings, I gain a new awareness of my audience after the speaking. You know, hopefully the uh, the awareness um, is less and less uh, egregious, and it's a little bit more and more savvy. Uh, but um, it, just being aware who's in the room, how they'll receive comments, and so whether it's the demographics that you just listed there, Tim, or it's just understanding kind of, if you will, the the sub demographics. You know, not right. only are you in a room full of parents um, who have very strong feelings for their children. But each and every one of those parents is is coming at that from a different angle, with a different right. concern, a different, um, you know, a different, let's say, a trigger point, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, every time I speak to an audience, um, I become more and more aware of how diverse every single audience is, how diverse their needs is, how di- diversely they will respond to what's being shared. Uh, and as a result, if you're open to that and you're humble about it. Uh, you'll get better and better and better at meeting the individual needs of everyone in your audience when you speak. Yeah, that, that, that's a, that's a really good point. You know, one, one of the things that I think is is more important than anything else when, when we're communicating is knowing who that audience is and be and being receptive to 
to, to who they are and what their message is, is as you're communicating with them, they're also communicating back to you and you have to be receptive to that to be able to get, give them the, the information that they need to be given and or, or the interaction that, that needs to happen within, within whatever communication that, that's actually going on. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. So then your second job, you stayed in the same school, but you moved into the role as, as an athletic director. Um, again, you're still a young professional. You're, you're still really excited. I mean, you're always really excited. Right? I mean, I, I understand that. But, you know, I look at it from, from, from you know, from the young professional you know, point of view. I'm, I'm so young, man. I'm, I'm moving up the ladder. I'm doing everything I need to do. But you're also a rookie again. You know, what anxieties did you have, you know, from, from that perspective? And, and what new groups of people did you have to interact with? Mm, yeah, um, I probably, you know, uh, had a drastic increase in interacting adult to adult as opposed to adult to student in that transition. Um, I was interacting with um, not only uh, the people I was directly responsible for, which would be all the coaches, staff in the athletic department, but I was interacting with the parents, the, the customer, if you will, that was mm -hmm. on the receiving end of that experience. Uh, and now I'm, you know, directly responsible for other adults in a way that points up towards the leadership above me, you know? And so like all those dynamics, anyone that's made a transition, you know, let's just say up a level, uh, Scott Evelyn's got a great book called the next level. And it's really about how to position yourself and adjust to the changes that happen when you move up another level. Uh, and so that certainly all of those things were, were really, really True. I, the best advice I got. Um, so I actually took over for the athletic director in the building who unexpectedly to everyone took the building principal role. Uh, and behind the scenes, I didn't know this until many years later, behind the scenes, he had really advocated for the school board to give me a shot uh, to be the athletic director. And so that's a really nice way of saying I was way too young and stupid to get that role, uh, but he really wanted me to have a shot at it. And so I'm forever grateful for him. Uh, and but one of the things that he said to me on the very first day um, that um, is still 100% true, he said, you know, I know you're going to try and like, you're, you're not going to know what to do, how to organize your first day, you know, as a full-time athletic director. He said, what I want you to do is get in the office. He said, I just want you to sit in the office quietly and wait. He said, the phone will ring. And it'll never stop ringing for as long as you're an athletic director. And uh, that was, uh, it was a hundred percent true. Um, I've really tried to, I've tried to be the person that when I'm given advice, you know, I tried to really think about how to apply it. And so I did, I can remember sitting there quietly. Uh, you know, let's say the school day started at, at eight, you know, and at, you know, eight twenty-five or so the phone rang, man. And that day disappeared like that. And really I'm 23, 24 years in education and all 23, 24 years have disappeared like that, you know? Uh, and so that was great. And the other thing he told me is, Chris, when in doubt, confirm, confirm, confirm. Uh, and that not only is great logistical advice, if you're a manager or a leader that's responsible for logistical details, um, but it's great communication advice. Um, just, just communicate, 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 communicate. It is amazing the problems that you will solve before they ever become problems if you are in a really an aggressive communication posture and you want to think about communication directional, you want to communicate in all directions. You want to communicate down to the people that you're responsible to lead. You want to communicate up to the people that you're responsible to report to. You want to communicate side to side to your colleagues that may be on the same management level as you. And you want to communicate out 
to the people that are experiencing whatever your your leadership efforts are. You know, some industries that would be the customer in the educational industry, that would be the parents, you know. And so you want to be an all direction communicator. Uh, and if you if that's your posture to do that and to do it aggressively, it is amazing the things that you will resolve before they ever become problems. It's amazing the lanes that you'll develop to to cast vision and to move people in a particular direction. Um, but it goes back to that Dr. Mueller quote, um, until communication has happened, leadership has not happened. Right. Uh, and so those were two great pieces of advice on my first day as a, a full-time a- athletic director. Wait till the phone rings. And when it does and you pick it up, it'll never stop. And when in doubt, confirm, confirm, confirm. Those are two great pieces of advice, I think, apply to a lot of different industries. Well, well, first and foremost, it, it's got to be a good feeling that, that somebody who re- really had the reputation that your athletic director had went to bat f- for for a, for you a young professional um, I got you you've got to feel really good about about that and and that relationship yeah i i've had this really unique experience in in a couple of the stops i'm working at my fourth school in 23 24 years um and all four places have been tremendous to me but in a couple of those stops i had the the i guess the luxury probably some would be a little leery of it but it ended up being a luxury for me of of working in the building and on the campus where the patriarch who I had taken over for still resided and worked. Um, and uh, those individuals were so very, very good to me. Um, they gave me space to lead. They gave me space to make mistakes. The guidance they gave me was always so just well presented. Um, and so um, I, I quickly, you know, I'm not the smartest, not the smartest person in the room, but I was smart enough to know, hey, listen, I, I really need to pay attention to these individuals. Right. Um, and I could probably expedite my leadership effectiveness by simply learning the hard earned lessons that they have, you know, and so um, that it did feel great. And honestly, as the years went on, I reflected on it and it felt better and better um, as my respect grew for those individuals and really the, the the chance that they they took on me. And so that's been a unique part of my story is is patriarchs letting me step into their roles and guiding me from a distance. That's been a real blessing. That, that's great. And, and then, you know, with, with your description of, of, of communicating down, up, left and right and out, that also gives, you know, you a little bit of, of freedom. If, the, if there are mistakes that happen, you, you, get, you get a little, little, little bit more forgiveness because, you, you know, you're, you're, you're communicating, you're, you're, you're not, doesn't seem like you're hiding everything. You're, you're making sure that every, all the information that's available is out. And that, that does come back around and allows for you know, a little bit more forgiveness of, of, of you. Yeah. Uh, an aggressive communication posture, um, one of the byproducts of it is that it really will reveal your intentions. And I would say there's very few, at least professionals I've ever worked with, that were aggressive communicators, that their intentions weren't very altruistic and their intentions right. were not very much for the benefit of others. Um, I, I do think there's a correlation to uh, being an aggressive communicator and being an other-centered leader. Uh, and I, I would say the reverse, at least in my experience, is true, where if you're working with someone who's a pretty poor communicator, they're probably not a very good other-centered influencer either. And so what happens is if you communicate aggressively, your intentions are inadvertently exposed, but that's almost always a good thing. And that leads to believing the best um, or what Will Gadara in his book, Unreasonable Hospitality, would become the charitable belief. You know, And so as a leader, you always want to have a charitable belief in others. You want to believe the best in others. And when you're aggressively communicating, you expose your intentions. 
And almost by osmosis, other people begin to pick up a charitable belief about you. And actually, when a problem arises or you've accidentally made a big mess, it's amazing how willing people will be to enter into it with you to help solve it, link arms with you to help you resolve it. It's just really, really, in my opinion, good for culture to be an all directions communicator, uh, really good for your culture, uh, because one of the reasons would be um, the revealing of intentions. And that's almost always a good thing if you're an aggressive communicator. Yeah, and, and, and to go along with that, to be able to have that aggressive posture, I mean, you also have to, to be confident in yourself that, that what you're doing is, is, is the right thing and, and being confident with being, being free to make mistakes as well. Yeah. Yeah. I've, one of the best ways you can communicate is just to ask a lot of questions. Right. You know, um, there's tons of books, you know, that really emphasize the importance of leaders to ask great questions. In fact, some would say the most effective leaders were the best question askers. And so if you're not sure what to communicate, ask a bunch of questions. You know, a question asking is definitely a form of communication. And in some would say it's, it's, it's a most effective form of communication. So if you're not confident, just ask a bunch of questions. <laughs> well, I also tell, you know, my students and young professionals all the time, I'm okay with being the dumbest guy in the room and, and asking questions because all that's going to do is, is, you know, clear things up, help me think better about whatever situation it is and help me make the plan to, to fix whatever problem that is. If, if, if I have more information, then I can do that, do those other things. That's right. That's right. So let's fast forward to your current position. You know, I, I had no idea that, that you had so many campuses and, and so many students out there. How does your communication style, how has it changed to, to go from, you know, the, the small schools up to, you know, um, the school you're at now that, that's, that's large and is, is separated, yeah. so to say. How, do, how does that, um, how has your communication style changed or has your process changed? Yeah, uh, I would say back to question asking, um, asking a ton of questions uh, when you're um, as, as spread out as we are geographically across all these campuses and, and all these leaders, uh, then you, you need to really ask a ton of questions because at first blush, it's very hard to understand the matters that you're responsible to coordinate, lead, problems that you're responsible to resolve. And so- You've got to ask a lot of questions. In fact, my 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 boss here, our head of school, Dr. Don Davis, um, often says, you know, ask the next question, right? And so it's almost not even the first question. It's going to be the next question. It's going to really help you to understand and discern how you can influence a situation uh, towards improvement and to our better status. And so I would say, you know, I am I have learned and am learning uh, the importance of not only just asking a question, but asking the next question, like really seek to understand things. And then I would say um, that for any leader in any position, creating a rhythmic communication style so that people can expect when they will hear with hear from you um, is a really, really big deal. And so, you know, I would encourage any leader that's listening to this consider what is your rhythm of communication? You know, is it an email to your staff every Tuesday morning at 9am? You know, if that's your rhythm, I would never miss that, right? Like, like right. that's one of the most important things that you will do for a couple of reasons. Um, it's, it, it puts your staff, the people you're responsible for, it puts them in a really, really confidence, um, consoled state. They know exactly what to expect. And when people know what, exactly what to expect, they can stop worrying about it and focus on what they're responsible for. You know, And so that rhythm is often a rhythm of communication is some of the most important things. And it's small. It's not, a, you know, sometimes you're thinking, man, I send the same email every single week. Is this a big deal? 
I promise you, once you create that rhythm, it is a huge deal to keep that rhythm in place. And so that's something that's, you know, I've figured out here. Sometimes the communication um, would be like, hey, like I'm just going to send a simple group text to my folks, uh, you know, just a word of encouragement, you know, every Wednesday, every Monday morning at 6 a.m. You know, it's just a word of encouragement. Let them know I'm thinking about them. Let them know I'm thinking about the week upcoming. Um, it is amazing how that becomes a reciprocal and all sudden lines of communication open up wide because they say, oh, Chris, man, I'm glad you've reached out. You know, I wasn't actually even reaching out to get any response, but their response usually is something that's important to them that I can help them, you know, solve or guide or direct. And so, so asking questions to understand has been huge for my communication here in this setting. And then rhythms of communication uh, have also been really, really critical to keep the lines of communication wide open. You know, I, I really like that analogy, you know, you know just reaching out to, at the same time, you know, and, and keeping that schedule because you, you never really know when that, like you just said, when that message is, is going to resonate with somebody and, and, and pick them up or jog their, their thinking to say, oh, you know what? I meant to ask Chris about this, or I meant to do do this. You know, thanks for that reminder. But but really, you, you never know what's going to help pick pick somebody up and where they are mentally and getting them ready to go and and let them know that other people are actually thinking about them on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. I, I think for leaders that are thinking about their communication, uh, Patrick Lencioni, you know, who's a tremendous thought leader in the world of business leadership, um, calls leaders CROs, Chief Reminding Officers. Uh, and so one of the one of the great um, fallacies of leadership is that you have to have all the ideas. Now, sometimes you just have to remind folks. Uh, Lencioti would use the term CRO to apply to like reminding folks about the mission of the institution, the organization, which I think is is huge and critical. Um, I would also say CRO can apply to much more daily pragmatic things as well. Um, and rhythms of communication create rhythms of reminding. Um, and as you just described there, Tim, um, so often. A rhythm of communication prompts something in one of your direct reports minds that they wanted to talk to you about anyway. And so those rhythms are just really, really critical. And I would say that the the larger the entity that you're leading or influencing, the more those rhythms are are critical um, to solving um, problems that have you know massive ripple effect. Um, you know, it's uh, if you're on a jet ski, right, and you make a wrong turn. You know, and you get thrown off the jet ski, ah, no big deal, right? You know, they right. just swim back to the jet ski and get on. If you're on an ocean liner and you make a wrong turn, you know, there's there's millions of dollars and thousands of lives at stake, you know. And so I would say the larger the entity, the more you want to create those rhythms so that you can really manage it well. Right. And, that, you know, that, that's a that's a perfect segue in, in, into the next thing. You, you know, you're getting ready to start a, a new chapter where you're going to be the leader of the school. So, you, I mean, so you've gone from, being a leader in the classroom to a department, you know, may, maybe, you know, f- some, some other reports as, as a principal or whatever, but now you're going to be the leader of the school. What challenges do you foresee ahead and how do you foresee yourself attacking and dealing with those challenges? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say um, I, I very much admit, I don't know what I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and so we've got to move, we've got to get there. Uh, and then um, one of the, one of the frameworks, so much of what's will happen for an effective leader when they arrive at a new place um, will be discovered at the place. Right. I think one of the, th- one of the mistakes a leader can make is thinking they're going to bring all the answers with them, you know, or they're going to bring the, the framework by which they're going to put the institutional organization inside of. Um, and I would say that that is in many ways a fallacy. You've got to get there 
and you've got to discover what's there. You've got to discover the the culture, the, the culture, community, right? What's important? What's not important? What's taboo? What are the sacred cows? You've got to discover so much there um, that will have an impact on whatever framework you think you're bringing, whatever vision you think you're bringing. Um, uh, once again, uh, my dear friend and who, who's my boss here, Dr. Non Davis, talks about how like core values you know, are, are so critical to understand your core values. Um, and if you bring core values from the outside, they're not core to the institution. Core means deep down inside. You know, Think about the core of the earth, right? And so when a leader gets an institution, we have got to dive into the community and uncover the core values. And so I would say that's very much my posture um, in this exciting new opportunity that we have um, to, uh, to lead in this community. Uh, and when I get there, uh, one of the things that's, that I'm going to do is I'm just going to create uh, a listening and learning tour uh, where I'm just going to, I'm literally going to create a, a schedule of, of meetings where I'm just going to listen and learn. Uh, from the people, and you you know you can break that down in all sorts of demographics. You know whether it's the existing campus leaders, or it's the faculty and staff, or it's the parents, or it's the students. Um, it's it's my direct supervisor or the people I'm direct. I have just got to listen and learn um, in that first season there, uh, and then whatever I think the vision can be for that place will actually be far better attuned to that place. Because I'll have a, just a greater understanding of it. Uh, I think it's my father used to say, um, as a leader, you can't change them until they think you're one of them. You know? And so um, my goal is to really become uh, one of the members of the community there in my early seasons of leadership. Uh, and that's going to be them communicating a lot to me and me listening to what they're saying. I've always thought, you know, when you, when you go to a new place, don't change anything for a year. Yeah. That, that, and that's probably the, the hardest, the hardest here at any, at any institution, because, you know, you're, you're, you have to do so much learning. You have to do, you have to make sure that you're, you're in touch with all, like you said, all of the different constituents, all the different, different layers and, and get to know what, what's going on in, bi you know, maybe the science department, but what's going on in biology as opposed to what's go going on in chemistry. They could be two very different things that one have very different needs, with very different directions. And, and you can't just say, oh, well, this is the science department. You, you can say the same thing for athletics. I think even on a deeper level, you, you talk about core values, you know who you are and that, that has developed over the course of your life and, and what you, what you think and what you believe. How do we get young professionals to figure out who they are and what their, and what their core values are? Because it seems to me you know, that they don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it and developing that. As a young freshman, the first question you're going to get to ask in an interview is tell me about yourself. They don't tell about themselves. They say, well, this is what I do. They want to know about you, right? So how do we teach young professionals to, to, to dig deep and figure out who they are as individuals? Yeah, uh, I think we probably share our story. Uh, and I think as a leader, we run institutions uh, that have great clarity on who they are and what they're about. Uh, and then it's amazing how formative that can be on young professionals. You know, it, it's one of the uh, probably one of the biggest blind spots of of any generation um, is to bemoan the next generation when we, in fact, are the ones that raised that next generation. Right. You know? And so, so often uh, that's that that it uh, lacks self awareness uh, when we do that. You know, um, you know, if if I'm I, I, my kids are you know moving down the path of life, uh, you know, starting to graduate college and get careers and and all this stuff. 
um, it, it, it's uh, tone deaf of me to complain about who my children are. I'm the one that raised them. You know, like right. who, who, whose fault is that? And so I would say that we should take a almost a parental posture um, with young professionals um, because they are still very much in a formative stage of, stage of their career. Uh, and I do think that they, whether they're consciously speaking to it or not, they will be shaped by their professional experiences. I can't remember who it says it, but the participation equals formation. Uh, and so you really want to think about the things you're participating in because they are forming you. Uh, and so what thing do we participate in more as adults than our jobs, you know? And so our careers, our jobs, the organizations we work at, our coworkers, these are things that we are deeply participating in. And so as a result, they are forming us. And so I think as leaders and as communicators, we need to take that, that seriously uh, and be intentional about how we are forming the next generation of professionals and these, these new professionals. In fact, on one of my teams this summer, uh, we just hired our first person born in the 2000s. Um, and I didn't even realize it. I was, I was looking at the individual's file a, a couple months later for something random, and I randomly came across the birth date. And it was 2001. And like, I, I could, like, I feel like I aged five years when I read that date, you know, like my goodness, you know, but um, we are working in the most, from a generational standpoint, the most diverse era uh, yeah. that the world has ever seen. Uh, Dr. Tim Elmore has a book he released in 2022 called A New Kind of Diversity. Um, and it's his study and results on this incredible a collaboration of generations now in the workplace. Right. Uh, and so I was actually just listening to a, an interview uh, with him about that book. And so we need to take the opportunity uh, to form, to guide, to mentor, to coach, to learn from uh, this next generation of professionals very, very seriously. And I think one of the formative effects that we can have on them, to your question, Tim, to help them understand who they are is to run organizations that are super clear about what they're about. Uh, and then that by os osmosis, that participation will create formation and it sets professionals up to get really clear about what they're all about in their career. Yeah, and I, again, that's a really good point because we do have some control over that, right? Yep. And it's kind of funny. You, you said that you just, you know, hired somebody who was born in, in the 2000s. I had a conversation in class just the other day that, I told the class, you know, I didn't realize I was old until about five years ago. <laughs> and, and they said, well, what, what brought you to that conclusion? I said, well, you know, because one of the things that I ask my students is, you know, what do you like? You know, what have you been doing? They have to write an essay. And the essay invariably starts, I've been involved in sports my entire life. And they're 18 years old. I'm thinking, I've, I've been teaching longer than you've been alive. You know, it, just, it kind of makes me chuckle. So you've been, you've been involved in sports for 14 years, right? And so that, that's when I realized that I was old. And that, <laughs> and that, you know, maybe how I was relating to the students probably probably should change a little bit. And I should maybe, again, t you know, take a, take a different posture. Um, and, and just, you know, when we had this conversation class on Monday, they all kind of laughed. I said, you know, if, if, you, if you think about it from, from that perspective, You've been involved in sports for your entire life of 14 years. I've been teaching longer than you've been alive. So, <laughs> so your perspective on your entire life is going to change. And, and uh, you know, the conversation was kind of led into the, the, the value that they put on sport, you know, in professional sport and being a fan. I said, you know, nobody loves sport more than me because I, I, I didn't watch the Super Bowl. That, this is kind of how this, this <laughs> conversation started. 
And I said, so this is the first Super Bowl I, I've missed in forever. But I was traveling because I had to do something that, that was more important than watching the Super Bowl. And I said, you know, your, your values and what's important to you is going to change throughout your life. And you're going to find at some point that your, your, your fandom value of a, of a given team, that's going to come down and you're going to have more important things in your life that you put that effort into. And they kept shaking their heads. No, no, no. I said, okay, that, you, that's fine. But just remember, write it down. Remember that Doc Newman told you this, <laughs> you know, in February of, of 2024. <laughs> so that is, that is, that is what it is. And, and, and I, I know so, some, it resonated with, with some of the students because, you, you know, you, you can see in how they respond and they say, well, yeah, because I don't feel the same, you know, going to practice for the club team that I was on today as I did three years ago. Okay. So, so, so you're, you're starting to see that there are more, more important things in life than, than, you, than, than your fandom. <laughs> so, you know, w when you have to give a presentation, you know, what's your process for, from the time that you agree to the presentation until the time that you step, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a stage, but it could be in front of the room, what happens? Yep. Yep. Uh, so I would say that there's some things that should always be humming in the background. Um, if you are in a position where you will, um, it's possible you would be called upon to make a presentation. Uh, there's a, a great quote out there that at some point, uh, every leader's handed a microphone and they better be ready to say something. Uh, and so I think there should always be some things humming in the background if you are going to maximize any opportunity to speak publicly. Uh, one of those things that should be humming in the background is you should always be learning. Um, and uh, sure, there's a, there's a difference between consuming information, which we do at unprecedented rates in modern times, between consuming information and, and intentionally learning. And so I would put in the bucket of intentionally learning, uh, book reading, um, writing, earning degrees, earning certifications, attending seminars. Um, those are the things. And so those things should always be humming in the background because you're only going to output as good as your inputs. Uh, and so um, I would even say a system of documentation um, of what you're experiencing at work, you know, where you're just filing notes from meetings well, you know, and you're just PowerPoint presentations that you've been, have been shared with you, you're filing well, you know, you just want to have all that stuff humming in the background, create a posture. That's just kind of how I live my life. It's got a lot of benefits. One of them is um, it will prime the pump for whatever opportunity might come your way to speak publicly. And so I would say that that is very much true for me, uh, just a, a real aggressive uh, reading, uh, note-taking, and writing habits. Um, and then when I find out that there's uh, an expectation that I'll deliver a, a speech somewhere or a communication or I know a, an event's coming up where I'll have to speak publicly, um, I really um, use it, utilizing all that stuff that's coming in the background. Uh, I'll just script down some, you know, some notes, some thoughts, some gut reactions uh, on the topic, uh, and I'll just let that percolate um, over a couple days um, alongside of that humming or with that humming. Once you write something down, it intensely puts your mind on it, even in a subconscious way. And now you're kind of almost like consuming information, reading, writing through the lens of that, let's say, speaking engagement that's coming up and those notes that you jotted down. And so I would say have, have a, a posture of learning coming in the background. Once you understand what you're going to speak about, or you just write some gut reactions down uh, and let that percolate for a couple of days. And then I would say probably step uh, three, right? So those would be three steps. Step three of maybe a four or five step process would be 
you're going to have to carve out some time, you know, and really just go ahead and build your presentation on the basis of the notes that you wrote and how that's been percolating on your mind, supported by the humming in the background of your general posture of learning. You're going to sit down and literally just put something down, right? Like really just build it out. You know, don't don't get overly anxious about is this just just build the thing out, build a presentation out. Do it days in advance, maybe even a week in advance uh, so that you can build it out. Say, okay, if I had to speak today, I'm ready, but I don't have to speak today. Give yourself another 48 hours, you know, 36 hours, 72 hours, whatever it is, and then go back to it with fresh eyes uh, for like a final refining. Um, If you've got some people, you know, that you can trust to share the information with during that two to three day window, that's super beneficial and helpful to put extra eyes on it. And really refine it, you know, anywhere from two to three days after you thought you finalized it. Uh, so refining actually happens after finalizing. Um, and then that refined product there, once you, you know, have worked it through and distilled it, edited it, made some changes. One of the key components of refining is getting more concise. You know, Albert Einstein, who's a pretty smart dude, I think, uh, used to say, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. You know, and I in today's day and age, it just we're just uh, constantly barraged with information. Uh, man, you want to make your public speaking engagement as concise and as direct as you possibly can. So refine, 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 refine. Uh, and so part of the refining process is to whittle it down. Uh, I can remember going through my doctoral journey. You know, for for a, a good part of it, you know, it was write more, write more, write more, write more, write more. And then all of a sudden, when it's time to actually do your dissertation and write your research, they want you to write less, yes. you know, like yeah. too much, get uh-huh. it down, cut it down, cut it down too much um, because they had poured so much into you and forced you to like engage with so much information for all those years. They now want you to take an Einstein posture of if you can't explain this simply, you must not understand it well enough. You know, and so I would say the same thing in a, in a smaller scale for a public presentation or a speaking engagement. You know, you want to like immerse yourself in it, you know, understand it so well that you can explain it very, very simply on the back end at the point of the presentation. Uh, and so uh, another little piece of advice that kind of goes along with a posture of of this hum in the background. Someone told me once, never turn down an opportunity to speak publicly. Um, and so, I, you know, I've tried to uh, been able to within reason embrace that. And so, um, you know, I, I, I regularly go to church, grew up, go to church. I still go to church. I teach a Bible study. Uh, when people ask me to uh, teach an additional Bible study, um, I almost always say yes, uh, because it's going to mostly help me learn something new, right? If you have, if you're getting prepared for a speaking engagement uh, and you haven't learned more than everyone else that's going to listen to you, you probably haven't prepared very well uh, because to teach is to truly learn. Uh, and so I would say, you know, if, if you want to create your own posture, your own process for getting ready to speak publicly, you're going to want to embrace any and all opportunities to present, which is that's that's a lot for people to consider, because I think, um, you know, after the fear of dying, the fear of public speaking is it's the number, number two one, great yeah. fear in the world. You know, and so um, that, it's a lot to ask, I think, for people to embrace like any any opportunity I get, I'm going to dive into because of how it's going to impact me. Um, that, that's a big ask. I understand that, but I have found it to be a really good advice. Well, you, it's, it's funny you say that, you know, because 
I talk to young professionals all the time about this, and and they say that their their fear of speaking in public primarily comes from they don't want to sound stupid and they don't want to mess up. And 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 you and I come from a very similar background, you know, from the sports background. So I'm sure you understand this. You know, the more you practice, the better you're going to be, which is you know essentially what you just said, right? So a great deal of confidence comes from 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 the practice because you you're getting better because you're practicing. You know. The, the analogy I, that I give them a lot of times is, you know, if, if you're on a, a, a team, you don't just go to the game, you you practice. You, you, you've got a game plan as input, you practice the game plan, and then you go and you compete. Uh, uh, public speaking is really no different. But what would you tell someone who says that they don't want to sound stupid or mess up? Um, I would say that um, they'd be surprised how preparation um, will will set them up. Um, I would say that um, the when you're an audience centric speaker, um, you always leave them wanting a little bit more. So they should never be afraid to speak short. Um, speaking short is almost always a pleasant surprise. Speaking long um, is almost always not a good thing, you right. know. And so, um, don't don't put pressure on yourself to speak long. Um, and don't put pressure on yourself to share anything that you have not previously learned, either through your experience or through your preparation for it. Uh, I think if they do that, um, if they remove those pressures from themselves, uh, they will also remove that pressure that they might feel stupid in what they're sharing. Um, my, so my wife, who's also an educator, um, has an advanced degree, is, is a director of a department, um, she um, really, really uh, does not like public speaking uh, to colleagues. You know, for a large part of her career, she was a classroom teacher, you know, elementary classroom teacher. And so being up in front of uh, little ones, no problem. Uh, but getting in front of, in front of colleagues uh, was a, a real source of stress for her. And then she took a director's role uh, and now she had to do it quite often. Um, and her preparation set her up. I can remember the first presentation that I saw her do. I was just blown away. I was blown away by what she knew, how she communicated it. Uh, and it's really because uh, she did not burden herself with a long presentation, you know, kept the presentation very reasonable time. Uh, and she was, she was obsessive about getting ready for it. And when she got through that experience, got on the back end and got so much positive feedback on it, you know, I, I tried to help her connect the positive feedback to the preparation. Right. And the reason that's such a big deal is because you're in control of preparation. You know, there's lots of things you might not be in control of, whether or not the microphone goes dead, whether or not you've got a sinus infection that day, so you sound easily. Those are things you can't control. And this is uh, great parenting advice, great coaching advice when you when, when children, when student athletes, or really anyone that you're responsible for experiences success, point their attention to what they did to create this success. Don't point their attention to maybe a natural gifting. You know, don't point their attention maybe to something they're not in control of. Point their attention to the things they're in control of. My daughter, uh, my youngest, um, who's a junior in high school, um, just finally achieved a new level and the sports science class that she takes that has a heavy, heavy physical performance component to it. And she was just fighting like mad to get to a particular level. And she was she she missed it a couple times. Well, she finally achieved it the other day, you know, and I pointed her attention to her, just her determination, right? her relentlessness to get there. Not the, not the new talent that she had acquired or not that it was just a perfect day for her or, 
you know, I pointed her attention to the thing that she controlled that led directly to that achievement. And so, you know, there's, there's two pieces of advice in there. If you want to relieve yourself of some of the anxiety of getting ready to speak, prepare, 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 over prepare. Um, you know, the, I think someone once said you're either over prepared or under prepared. There is no just prepared, right? You know, so choose your over prepared. Um, and you'll be surprised at how well you'll present to people. Uh, and then when you do, remember what led to that positive outcome. The things that you control is what led to that positive outcome. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, just, just using your daughter as an example here, when, when you're having that conversation with her and you pointed that out, I'm sure you can see a, 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 a brightness come over, whether it was in her face or attitude, whatever. And, and that, that she realized that, that what she did was noticed. And that's going to be, you know, that, that positive feedback for the next time, for the next time, for the next time right on down the line. That's right. That's right. Rec as, a, as a leader, a great concept is just recognize what you want repeated, you know? And so when you recognize something, be intentional about what you're recognizing because it will be what's repeated, you know? And so uh, recognize things, things that people can control. Right. You know, and, and on, on another side of that, you know, a lot of people don't know that, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, obviously before he died, the, the, the intense preparation that he went through for all of his keynotes. I mean, he would practice these things for months ahead of time. They, yeah. they would they would give him you know you know piece of information. And he would practice. And he would practice. And he would practice. And he would practice. He would actually go into the auditorium and practice. And he, his step his steps were coordinated. His turns every. I mean he, you know if you've ever seen any of his keynotes, I mean they they come off flawless. And that doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. That's right. I, and you know that's a that's a great. Um, just life posture. When you see something amazing, amazing happen, um, you d d you're really want to going to think about like, hey, like what intentionality went into that happening? You know, you see right. an amazing athletic achievement, or you see, I um, even the the intense preparation for like the Super Bowl halftime performances. You know, yes. Usher just perform. Uh, it's like it's the uh, unbelievable work. I mean, not only are they unbelievable talented people. Um, but they're unbelievably prepared for the moment. And so that's, that's uh, it's something I think sometimes we too quickly gloss over. Um, when we see something amazing, we underestimate the, the preparation that was required to produce that amazing result. Now, on the flip side, even when we prepare, we, we still mess up. What's your most embarrassing moment, you know, when you've been presented? And how did you recover from that? Because that's the other piece. We can't just be embarrassed and... and and quit and walk away. We have to recover and pick up and move forward. Move forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, had this great reflection after World War II, uh, where he said, "I find in war uh, that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable." Uh, and so I would say one of the ways to survive whatever might come your way is to be over prepared. It's amazing how nimble you can be when you're over prepared. Uh, and so, um, whether it's uh, microphones blanking out or, or or slide decks not working, um, I would say that um, the embarrassing scenarios that I've had to navigate when up in front of people uh, were always fueled by a, a pretty obsessive preparation. Um, I, I I really can't think of a time when I got up in front of people where I hadn't put really significant thought into it. And that includes a little bit like, Hey, I kind of know what I'm going to do if this all goes wrong, you know? And so, um, you know, I've had microphones go out, uh, and, uh, thanks to all my, my coaching days, you know, I know how to speak from my gut, you know, really project my voice, you know? And so I've, I've had those things happen. 
Um, I've had, uh, you know, slide decks go blank. Um, I've had like uh, physical visuals that just, you know, uh, maybe I forgot the visual, you know, and so thankfully the preparation, I almost always prepare two analogies for something in case one goes wrong, you know, and so I forgot the the visual that I was going to use. And so because I had a second, let's say, analogy prepared, you know, I just pivot right into that. And so um, I would say over preparation sets you up to survive any uh, any specific complications or embarrassments that come up. I can remember this isn't embarrassing, but I can remember for a while I was a dean of students um, at a, a Christian school right outside Washington, D.C. And part of my responsibilities was the weekly chapel. Uh, and making sure that I had a chapel speaker in place to come speak to the high school students, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I can remember um, just, I had never gotten a confirmation email back, remember, confirm, confirm, confirm. I'd never gotten a confirmation email back from my guest speaker. Uh, I'm sitting in the back of chapel while like the opening uh, announcements and, and worship songs are happening. And my speaker has not shown up. My speaker has not shown up. Uh, and so, so like, we're like T minus three minutes, you know, uh, and so, um, I, I opened my Bible real quick, uh, and, uh, made three quick little circles and put together a quick little three point chapel, uh, encouragement to the kids, um, thought of a story to open it up that would catch their attention, thought of a quote at the end, uh, that would really kind of wrap things up. Um, and I walked up there and here's the thing. I never made any mention whatsoever that the guest speaker didn't show mm-hmm. up right, because you're setting yourself up for a really uphill battle. If they know that chaos has unfolded and you weren't even supposed to be standing there, right? Don't right. even draw your attention to it. Get up there, act the part, uh, and fake it till you make it. Uh, right. And so um, that's that's probably one of my more fond memories. And so even today, uh, when I'm walking into a situation uh, where I'm going to be um, sitting in an audience um, that's relative to my job or my institution, I'm always even in the back of my mind preparing. Hey, what would I say if somehow I had to stand up with the microphone? Like, what would I say right now? I literally said that to my wife driving to church on Sunday, uh, getting go. We were just attending Bible study, and I said, "Is it weird that I prepare a mini Bible study in my brain while we're driving to church in case this teacher doesn't show up and they need someone to teach?" She said, "You really need to stop sharing things like that with me." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. She'd probably say, "Yeah, yes, it is weird, but I don't expect anything less." That's <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> So, so on the on the flip side, what's the best presentation you, you ever you've ever had, and why did you feel that way? Um, I, I don't know if it, it's hard to gauge best. Um, you know, I would say the ones that I valued the most. Um, so uh, during the pandemic, you know, we all just together collectively as a world experienced such a surreal thing. Um, but what you know, what did emerge was all of these virtual connections, and so um, you know, I got to present on multiple platforms, um, how to lead through crisis, which was really relevant because we were all dealing with crisis. Uh, and so, um, that, that was really, really valuable for me because it forced me to constantly reflect on, um, not the, the presentation, but what was my lived reality? Was I actually being the type of, of leader and colleague, um, husband, you know, father, you know, coworker, was I being the type of person that was helping others navigate crisis, you know, because shame on me to be talking about it and not living it, you know. So I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk about it because it helped me reflect on where was I doing this well, where was it I, 
So that was super valuable. And then um, I've done a series of presentations on how to struggle in the right direction. You know, we live in a day and age when everything we see online um, is so perfectly curated or it's so celebratory. You know, we forget the struggles um, that usually the mountain of struggles that lead to the mountaintop experience. Uh, And so I think um, helping people to really put their minds around how to leverage struggle so it moves you in the right direction was really relevant. Um, It's really, really valuable to me. Um, You know, one of the thoughts that, that came out of that presentation are no matter what the problem is, doing your best work will always be part of the solution. You know, and so, so often we get stuck in a struggle, a tough season of life. Things aren't going well. Things are falling apart. Right. And we just, we just throw our hands up, you know, and we think, what's the point, you know, when actually that's probably the most important time to dive in even harder on something, you know? And so part of the solution will always be your best work. Uh, And so that would be one of the thoughts that came out of that. One of the other thoughts that came out of that is aspire to be the type of person people want around when it's all falling apart, you know, and, and what does it take to be that type of person? You know, when people like when, when everything's a dumpster fire and they've got to pick people to get into the dumpster fire with them, what does it take to be the type of person that they would want to be with them while it's all going bad, you know? And so struggling in the right direction, those presentations were really, really meaningful because I think they, they matter to so many people. But, and especially at the time, it really did because n- nobody really had any direction at all. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're all stuck in our houses, you know, afraid to go to the grocery store. You can't, you weren't even allowed to go to church. You're, you're stuck inside your house. You don't know what's going on. You can't, you can't go anywhere. And, and you know, a lot of mental health issues happen because of that as well with, with, with yep. no direction. And, and we really did and do need leaders to, 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 to start driving people away from that. So yep. that, that's, yeah. Yeah. that's perfect. Yeah. So, so is there a speaker that that's that has had the the, the most impact on you or, or somebody that you really kind of kind of look to uh, to emulate yourself after or, or or to model yourself after? Yeah, I would say it's probably um, a, a compound effect. So my my grandfather was a Baptist pastor. And so we visited his church, you know, once a month growing up. And so, you know, that was a very close patriarchal family member that I just always saw up in front of people speaking. And so I think that had a real subconscious effect on me. My father, uh, to this day, 48 years leading um, in small uh, faith-based private schools. And so I grew up in my father's schools. And so I, I grew up watching him speak to all sorts of groups. Um, I grew up at a church that had a, a very dynamic pastor. And so, I, I mean, you know, you just can't even underestimate the impact of um, hearing individuals like this. My grandfather, my father, our local pastor. Um, speak, you know, literally multiple times a week. Uh, probably a week didn't go by that I didn't hear the three of them speak anywhere from three to five times a week throughout my entire childhood. Uh, and so, my college basketball coach, I spent, I played small college basketball. Um, it it meant the world to me. Might as well have been playing at Kentucky. You know, right. I was just so ecstatic to be playing college basketball. And I had a coach that, you know, definitely lived out the mantra of uh, make where you are the big time. Uh, and so he dumped his entire heart and soul into our program um, and had a huge impact um, on um, generations of young men. Um, three of them I work with here currently. Do you really? After school at Houston. Uh, my boss, uh, our head of school, Dr. Don Davis, was my college teammate. 
Um, our athletic director, uh, Mike Walker, was my college teammate, and our high school principal, John Consman, uh, was not my college teammate, but he played in the same program for the same man just a little bit, a couple years after us. Both my brothers played for him. And so uh, Mike Shaw um, at Clark Summit University in Scranton, Pennsylvania, has had um, untold impact on generations of, of male leaders. Uh, and so Coach you know, was in front of us all the time, and, and there was no such thing as a toned down version of Mike Shout, you know, every version of Mike Shout is volume up, you know, uh-huh. and so um, just understanding day-to-day passion and how it's communicated. And then I would say most recently, um, uh, Dr. Jimmy Scroggins, uh, who's uh, a lead pastor at uh, a network of churches in South Florida, um, just really one of the most authentic um, uh, communicators that I have seen. So all of my models, if you will, of public speakers, would be people I know personally because I just for just part of God's plan for my life is I've always been around public speakers, right? Uh, the industries that I've been in, uh, both both church and school, and so they the, those names there um, have had a, a real big collective impact on my my public speaking and my communication. Those are great examples. I, you know, I really like the idea that you know you you're working with your college teammates because that, you know that whole idea of, of like minds build build great things, right? To have that, not only that that friendship, but that working relationship for for as long as you have, that, that that's a really good story. It really is. Again, it points back to 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 your coach, Coach Chow. Yeah, yep. Yeah. It, it points back to to him and and his vision. And you know that that he's got to feel good about it, that that he's accomplished or or touched so many lives, and he sees you all out doing the things that you all are doing. Yeah, it's um, it, it's super fun. Uh, the the athletic director at the largest. Um, it might be the largest private school in Ohio now. Cuyahoga Valley Christian Academy is a guy named Dr. John Young. Um, John played for Mike Shaw. My brothers were teammates with John. Uh, Don Davis, our head of school, uh, was teammates with him. And so um, David Robinson, who's the head of school at Washington Christian Academy just outside of Baltimore, uh, played for uh, for Coach Shaw. And the, and the list just goes on and on and on. And, you know, for, forgive me to any of teammates that I'm forgetting right now. Um, you know, uh, Taylor Jackson's a lead pastor up in Rochester, New York. He played for Mike Shaw. Uh, the list can just go on and on and on of all of these guys. And they're out there impacting their communities. And they would all point back to Mike Shaw as having a, a really, really formative impact on their lives. Um, and so it's a, it's a special part of our story. That's for sure. But it's amazing. And, and it may be something that maybe we can revisit it and, and do, do something on that again. As well, because again, you said you went to, to to a small school, but we we always hear about the big schools that that have these trees, right? And and these coaches that have these trees, but you know what I, what I tell people for the most part is, you know, there are only there, there's a hundred some Division One programs. How many Division Three programs are there? That that's that, that's where where you know a lot of things happen that nobody really knows about. That you know you have all these great stories about people going out and and impacting you know lives you know, wide on, on a much wider basis. Yep. You know, you know, and I, you know, you know, I talked before, you know, that, you know, we, we can only affect the, the, our circle. You know, we, we, we can't, we can't worry about what's happening to, you know, two counties over, but if, if we impact our circle around us, then hopefully those people will impact their circle around them. It's like that ripple effect. Um, and, and that's really to me what, what, what division three and those smaller schools are. You have a much more opportunity, a much bigger opportunity, opportunity to impact a greater number of people. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. hundred percent. I agree with you. I'm a product of it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's change gears a little bit. You know, we, we, we mentioned that you've got a podcast and a blog and, and it's called bite down and don't let go. And by the way, yeah. I, I really enjoyed the one that you posted from July 7th of 2023. You know, the five big fish, five reality checks we all need that, that really resonated with me. Um, where did the name bite down and, and don't let go come from? I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, I know I listened to it and, and I actually got a little fired up, but I want you to tell the story so, so that our listeners can, can hear from, from you. Yes. Um, so uh, I coached varsity basketball for 16, 17 years. Um, it was great. Um, some of my fondest memories, some of my closest relationships are now with my players who have long since graduated and going on to become men and lead their families and all that. And so um, shout out to all the coaches out there uh, that are trying to impact lives, trying to use sport to impact lives. It's an unbelievable tool, uh, but it requires unbelievable sacrifice. So shout out to all those coaches. So throughout the, a lot of the themes that I would have for my seasons with my teams, we'd always have a theme, you know, they were always related around just a relentless persistence, you know? Um, And so I I won't unpackage of them, but uh, almost every single one, um, as I look back on it, and I didn't realize this until I kind of got maybe 12, 13 years in my coaching career and looked back down the, the course of my career and saw all these themes. Um, my father had this great definition of determination, um, say, they said determination is biting off more than you can chew and, and chewing it. you know. And so um, one of the analogies I used with my team one year uh, was um, bite down, you know, and it was it was around this idea of determination is biting off more than you can chew and chewing it. And there's this great story that I think is true uh, coming out of World War II with Winston Churchill and Churchill used to bring his bulldog uh, to parliament meetings. Churchill, Churchill was a really, really eccentric guy and um, and and people were at times a little scared to engage with him. But. At some point, one of the members of parliament finally mustered up the courage to ask Churchill, you know, prime minister, why do you bring a bulldog to parliamentary meetings? Because honestly, it's wildly inappropriate is basically what he was implying. And Churchill kind of gruffly replied, because he can breathe without letting go. You know, and if you think about dogs, most of them have these long snouts. And if they want to really dig their face in to bite down on something, it blocks the end of their nose. You know, and dogs really don't breathe through their mouths. Dogs mostly breathe through their nose. And so to block that, not those nostrils on the end of that long snout is like they just, they have to let go to breathe at some point. Not, not bulldogs though. They've got these smashed in snub noses. And so they can get something way back in the back of their jowls, clenched down on it. And they can, they can breathe without letting go, you know, and Churchill was such a, so dogmatic about persistence, determination. You know, he's the one that that famously told a graduating class at an all boys school while London is under intact, uh, intense bombing from the Nazis. Um, he told that group of the graduating class, we will never give in. Never, 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 never. And I think he said never 11 times in two sentences. You know, this was Churchill. He just refused to give in on things. And so that bulldog was a regular reminder to everyone. In Parliament, we will not give in. We will bite down and we will not let go. I share this story with a room full of teenage boys playing varsity basketball. I think it was like maybe 2018 or 19. And one of the kids um, who's a, a great, great friend of mine says, man, coach, like, like you should write about that, you know. And so I decided to name uh, the, the blog, Bite Down and Don't Let Go, 
the relentless pursuit of leading yourself and others. Uh, and so, you know, that's kind of the posture on everything that I share on that, that blog. And then I went ahead and did a kind of an audible version, an audio version of it called the bite down, don't let go podcast, you know? And so it all comes from that Churchill, uh, quote, um, that bulldogs can breathe without letting go. That's, that's awesome. And again, I, I get, I get fired up, listening to it. I mean, <laughs> you know, Winston Churchill, one of the greatest leaders in the, in the history of the world, you know, w- without him, we, we don't know wh- where, where the world would actually be. So. Um, and I did not know the story about the, the bulldog, um, but I had heard the story about him, you know, talking in the school about the never, 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 never. Yep. That's, that's what we have to do sometimes for, for us to, to get to where we really want to be, you know, follow that right path and don't, and don't quit. Don't let up no matter what, no matter what the obstacles lay in front of us. That's oh. right. That's right. The, the great, the great poem, the, uh, the author, oh, it's uh, Calvin Coolidge, Pre- president Calvin Coolidge, um, you know, has that great poem about persistence. Um, where he closes out the poem where he says, persistence alone is omnipotent. You know, uh, Jay Johnson is a tremendous thought leader in the world of distance running, you know, and he talks about how consistency is the only superpower, right? you know? And so, um, you know, I pass that along to um, as many folks as I often can, uh, because they probably underestimate what they can get done if they just keep doing it. You know, and so um, all of that, you know, just the idea of persisting through hard things to break through has always been a, a fascinating topic for me. Yeah, it's awesome. So w- w- where can uh, people f- find you at? Yeah, yeah. So um, I do I do share a lot, not because I think I know a lot, but because I'm, I'm constantly learning. Uh, and so one of the ways that I learn is I kind of just share it out there. And so please understand that's my posture on everything. But um, pretty active on Twitter um, at dr underscore Chris Hobbs. Um, I've got a a Substack that is called uh, Learning and Leading. Um, if you're if you're into Substack, uh, you know the the blog and the the podcast can be found on all your typical platforms. If you just go ahead and just search it out there, uh, LinkedIn as well. And so I uh, really uh, have valued my networks out there and getting to know people and and seeing what everyone else is talking about, sharing and learning. Uh, and so love to connect with anyone out there. Thanks. And I'll, I'll put all those links in the show notes for, you know, for our listeners so, so that they have it. Chris, th- thank you so much for spending some time with us. Yeah, I really appreciate it. You know, I, I hope that uh, your, your story can, you know, resonates w- with our listeners. You know, I, I get a lot out of, out of this, you know, we, we've talked, you know, here, but we've also talked offline and uh, you've, you've had a big impact on me and some of the directions that, that I want to start taking some things as well. So again, I really do appreciate it. Tim, uh, the pleasure is all mine. I'm really grateful that you invited me to join on. So thank you. All right, bud. Take care. Let's take a few minutes to reflect on a conversation with Chris. He shares thoughts on the importance of both communication and leadership, how closely they are tied together and the evolving nature of his views over time. Chris generously talked about his personal insecurities at various stages of his professional journey and the things that helped him grow and succeed along the way. He provided specific tips to develop public speaking skills and planned presentations. Chris included personal stories, lessons from his own role models, sources of inspiration, and specific resources. Can't thank him enough for taking the time to talk with us and for being so helpful to the Speaking with Confidence community. As promised at the beginning, Each episode addresses the art and science of public speaking and covers techniques to enhance your communication skills. Chris talked about the need to understand your audience. He discussed the significance of not only knowing the general demographics of who is in the room, but also identifying their sub-demographic. Fully agree with him on the importance of firmly establishing expectations. 
Before you can speak with confidence in public, before you can speak with confidence in public, you need to be confident you can speak to what the audience wants and needs. Chris referenced this as the diversity of the audience and gave examples of how parents attending the same meeting have different perspectives, questions, and concerns based on the specific needs of their child. He went on to say there may be different trigger points for each participant. As a result, effective speakers must learn to read the room, adjust in the moment, reflect afterward, and apply what was learned to subsequent speaking engagements. In terms of practical tips to apply in your own life, Chris pointed to his own experience and the mentors he has had at various points in his career. He recounted times he was able to learn from the people before him in both his personal life and professional life. As an actionable item, Chris emphasized the need to ask questions as a routine part of communicating with others. He recommended the practice of asking questions to understand, which includes questions to gain new information, as well as questions to clarify previous communications. Chris spoke about the overall value of asking questions as part of promoting positive leadership styles and growth opportunities for both individuals and organizations. He mentioned Patrick Glencioni's use of chief reminding officers as an example of how questions can be used to communicate clarity. Once again, I fully agree with Chris and include a variety of questioning techniques as part of my ACES formula for public speaking. One of my favorite parts of the conversation with Chris revolved around the process he uses to prepare for any type of public speaking and the role preparation plays. His philosophy of always learning and being intentional resonated with me. I wholeheartedly agree with the practice of over-preparing as a methodical approach to relieving the anxiety associated with public speaking. His reliance on working hard, aspiring to be the type of person that people want to be around in a time of crisis, and emphasis on preparation, all speak to the things that I know consistently help build confident speakers. The directional communication strategies that Chris explained during the interview combined with strategic planning and preparation, provide a strong foundation for speaking with confidence. Visit the Speaking with Confidence website and join our growing community. Sign up for special updates regarding the June 1st launch of the Formula for Public Speaking. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. Next episode drops on March 18th. Please download, like, and share the podcast with friends. Always remember that your voice has the power to change the world. Take care, and I'll talk to you soon.